Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Neil Krauss, Professor of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-River Falls. And Neil, whom I've only just met yesterday, I had a really enjoyable conversation with Lance Bennett, uh, who is sort of a refugee from political science. Okay. And I guess the wonderful thing about your work is that I think you've escaped some of its less appealing tentacles and tendencies, shall we say, um, I must say, because, you know, I'm a, I was somebody who studied it in college uh, and also in grad school. And uh, you actually look at things like the political, the real political economy, <laughs> which is considered I, a bit of a sin in the discipline in many parts, you know? <laughs> It, um, no, I think, I think you're onto something there for sure. I, I, I think that, um, much of political science and I think a lot of academic disciplines are primarily about perhaps a, a literature that they're addressing, um, and, and not necessarily about kind of the, the larger framework within which we're, we're operating. Um, you know, neoliberalism is a word that I really stayed away from until I was well into the book and I, and I didn't really have a final title. Um, but then I kept coming back to, I'm writing about this system that's really been dominant for a few decades in the United States and, and much of the West. Uh, and neoliberalism kind of, I think is the best way to describe it concisely just to, to contrast it with how, you know, how, how politics and government, public policy, business uh, functioned really prior to say the late seventies and eighties. And and I think much of political science, like many academic disciplines are kind of caught up in this system that we're in this sort of neoliberal system in which austerity is the default. And, and I mean, I work at a public institution and we're told all the time that, well, austerity is just how things are now. Um, and yet it wasn't really that long ago when, you know, public higher education, as you know, was substantially publicly funded and very, very inexpensive or free to students. Um, so yeah, uh, a good friend of mine and, and co, uh, uh, co, uh, colleague rather in the UW system, the John Shelton, uh, he, he read an early version of my book and he said, this isn't political science, Neil. And, and I, I said, well, I get, and John's a historian. I said, you know, I guess it's not. If I were to look at the bibliography, there's not very many works, uh, they're actually by political scientists and yet it's very much about politics and about the world. Well, that's that's the point, isn't it? You know, yeah, <laughs> science has moved so far away from politics. Now, the book that we are just focusing on is Neil's really bravura book, which has neoliberalism in the subtitle, but I actually think uses a term that should become state of art as the main title. It's called the fantasy economy. And although education is a big part of what you describe, the fantasy economy has really gripped me as a reader. Could you tell us a wee bit about that idea, Neil? Sure, sure. Uh, several years ago, seven or eight years ago at least, I started writing a book about uh, K-12 education reform. I mean, I've been in urban studies really my whole career, written a couple books about urban politics, and I'd studied urban schools. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll write a book uh, about K-12 school reform. I have a chapter on charter schools, a chapter on vouchers, kind of a survey. That, that's how I envisioned it. And at the time, I was going to all these meetings on my campus. And I was involved in, in several committees on my campus. Uh, and the news in the U University of Wisconsin system, like most public university systems in the United States, is always bad. It's either bad or it's horrendous. I mean, th that's how, uh, that's how public higher ed goes these days. And I would go to these meetings and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm working on this book at home, you know, charter schools and I'm reading all this literature. And then I go to the meetings and, and, and I would hear all these claims and, you know, made and I'd read all these reports about, well, we have shortages of STEM workers. We have, you know, there's always a skills gap. 
there's never our graduates are never good enough for the economy for employers and i thought how can this possibly be the case i mean on one hand higher education we have something that ostensibly everyone needs we have higher education right and society says of course that you know you need higher education to 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 advance and 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 you know all students really if they want a decent standard of living they should go to college and yet so so we have something that presumably everybody needs but we're powerless we're powerless we're we're always failing there's always a shortage of skilled workers we're 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 no matter what we do it's wrong yeah i mean now if you read the higher ed press almost every single day or the or the new york times for that matter or m- most of the media what do we hear now there's a wave of surveys the public is losing confidence in higher ed right we're we're all, we're always failing for one reason or another. So I started to look up a lot of these numbers about the labor market, and I thought, and I was reading a couple other books at the time too. There's a great book uh, by um, Hacker called "The Math Myth" uh, that I read, uh, and he was citing BLS data in that book. Um, and I started looking up numbers and and reading a little bit about the labor market, and I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. There doesn't appear to be a shortage of any skilled workers at all, uh, according to the Department of Labor and according to scholars who have looked into it. Um, there appears to be a surplus of particularly graduate degree holders who then compete for jobs which bachelor's degree holders um, you know, should be getting. And one thing led to another. And I just started checking all these sources, just basic scholarship. Go to the notes and how do we know any of this stuff? How do we know any of this stuff? Um, and I found this whole world of privately funded, either corporate or foundation funded data that's really driving the entire debate, the entire debate. There's almost no official data. An occasional census makes a rep, you know, makes an appearance on occasion or. Um, and really, that's what the book is. It juxtaposes all this privately funded and produced data with basically data from the Department of Labor and the Census Bureau and the Federal Reserve and other agencies. And I sorry, one day, I'm not quite sure when it was years ago, I thought, this is not the real economy at all. <laughs> that, that we're, that's governing all of Pyra. This is this seems to be a fantasy. And it's funny, because I, I mentioned that title to people outside the academy of several colleagues. And they're, they said, wow, that's, that's a pretty interesting title, you know. Um, so yeah, it just kind of stuck. And I and I kept it. And and I, I don't know. I think it turned out OK, the title anyway. Now, Neil, the plurality of our listeners is in the United States, but the majority is not. So just if I can nip in with a bit of context. So K through 12 means kindergarten through the mm-hmm. end of secondary school. Or high That's school correct. Yeah. Yep. BLS is the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's right. That's right. And, and charter schools are and vouchers refer in part to the Milton Friedman and Rose Friedman notions of how you could create greater choice based on parental interests rather than state or teacherly concerns in which this, the notion of choice would not supposedly be restricted to the wealthy when it came to private education in its traditional sense, but would involve the reutilization of public funds to encourage the private world to emerge as an option mm. for parents. That that's right. Charter schools uh, and vouchers. I talk about. You know, I have a chapter uh, on school choice in the book, and and um, charter schools are publicly financed and privately run. So we don't elect school boards or anything like that. They exist primarily in the United States. They exist primarily, but not exclusively, in urban areas in high poverty areas. Uh, vouchers are uh, public money given to parents to then go to private schools, which as of 2008 or so, the U.S. Supreme Court authorized the use of vouchers for uh, religious schools um, in addition to non-religious schools. So, um, yes, that's correct. They're they're both market-based education policies that uh, vouchers definitely have origins in Freedmen. Charters have vouchers. I talk about them in the book. Actually, um, 
have vouchers at least, or excuse me, have origins rather close, closely associated with uh, teachers unions. But then the idea was was basically hijacked by by business very early on. And, and they became very much a, a, a favorite policy of, of neoliberal uh, advocates and market based advocates and and um, and really have been up until the present day. I mean, if we go back internationally and think about Great Depression, so I'm thinking of 1890, the 1930, and then let's say it's hard to put a date on it, but you could put it anywhere from the oil crises from 1973, crises referring to increased prices to the global north uh, for getting energy up until the 1980s. It's always the case that education is the target for blame, just as you've described. Whenever there is a problem with capitalism, hegemones of the nation's intellect, but it's not just the United States, it's really everywhere in the capitalist world, target education for castigation. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um absolutely. And and one of the things I found repeatedly and, and talk about in the book is a very deliberate, very explicit uh shift that really came about during the Reagan administration and Reagan funded researchers uh at Columbia at the Hudson Institute. Uh, initially to basically say flat out that the, you know, we want to change the mission of education to, to make the schools responsible for the economic futures of, of students. Now, if you don't know what the labor market is, if you believe that there are all these high skill, high wage, high education jobs, which I think many people do believe, which is why one of the reasons I wrote the book, then that statement sounds benign. It sounds innocuous, right? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with making the schools responsible? We want to educate all kids to give them the best opportunity. Uh, of course we do. Of course we do. And, and we should. But when the labor market remains dominated by uh, low education, low skill, low wage, non, now increasingly non-unionized jobs, uh, we can't we can't change that by no matter how well we educate any student. Mm-hmm. We can't change the number of jobs for college graduates by cranking out more college graduates. That's not how things work. Um, and and uh, and yes, you're right. I mean, there there and I grew up, you know, uh, as I talk about, you know, in the book. I mean, I grew up in the in the seventies and eighties, and and I, you know, I remember living through all this as a kid, like just, you know, my my dad got Newsweek magazine and, and, you know, and things like that. And, and, uh, the schools were, were at fault before, before a nation at risk in 1983. Um, the schools were being attacked really several, many years before that in the national press for failing, for, you know, putting out all these students who presumably couldn't read and, and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, Attainment rates are continually increasing, right? Um, more people are getting high school degrees. More people are getting, you know, this is one of the stories of the book throughout. More people are getting bachelor's degrees. Way more people are getting master's and graduate degrees. And yet the education system is being, you know, pummeled um, uh, for failing just all the while. Um, so yeah, you're right. It, 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 it's, it's very, it's very, it's a very explicit. We're going to shift the discussion to make it all about the schools and today make it all about higher education and not about the, the assault on labor unions, not about uh, a frozen minimum wage at the national level, not about the increasing monopolization of the economy, not about the outsourcing of jobs and deindustrialization. No one wants to, I mean, you don't want to talk about those things for sure. You want to talk about, nope, the, your local English department is radical. And by the way, the students that graduate uh, are 
totally unskilled. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's just politics. It's just self-interest. I mean, that's right. all it is. Yeah, you know? right. And I guess the other factor here is going back to the faux statistics that you refer to, the insidious, invidious work of thousands of think tanks across the world, but probably more in the United States than anywhere else, that have second, third-rate intellectuals producing so-called reports that will be three or four pages long, that don't involve serious research, that haven't been peer-reviewed, and that get them minutes on cable television being interviewed as if they knew what they were talking about, even if the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the FBI's crime data, whatever it might be, has produced data on the same topic that is antithetical to this rubbish, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me when I started looking into so much of this 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 data is, wait a minute, we have all this data. I mean, the, the, what the U.S. Department of Labor the kind of data it provides is and the census bureau and the department of education is is so vast i mean you can't even begin to wrap your mind around all the data that we have at our fingertips in the united states that's that's been produced by statute uh for for decades and decades yeah, yeah. um it's the real economy right it, it tells the story of the jobs that are actually there the wages that are actually paid uh it's the story of the population it's the story of the education system um but it doesn't work it doesn't work that data tells the story which is really the story i tell in the book of an increasingly educated population consistently uh, increasingly educated and yet a low education low skill labor market um and you know, it, there's so much what I call alternative data in in the ecosystem, and and that's why I talk about the word data in the book, uh, b- because what I think I discovered after just reflecting on this for a while is that you know if you invoke that word data, you sort of the room becomes spellbound. And whatever is on the screen, whatever is being presented by anybody who's doing the presenting, if it's labeled data and it's numbers, end of story. That's all. Okay. There's, there's no, there's no, there are no interests involved. There's no politics involved. There's no, there's no, there's no other source of this data. The source that's producing it is, is objective because their numbers after all. And it's as if self-interest in higher education. Um, I mean, the outside world kind of gets this when, when, when I tell people what the, the argument of the book is like in a nutshell, well, yeah, there really aren't all that many great jobs and higher ed is kind of a gamble and, and it's become increasingly expensive. And, you know, I mean, they get that in a second, you know, you talk to people at work in business and, everywhere else they understand that the education system inside particularly higher education there's a real resistance to even contemplating that uh wait a minute now this is this is uh we're being treated in in political terms and they're not to our our favor and you know in Wisconsin, we're getting a budget cut. We have a budget surplus. This is actually happening in many states. Public university systems are getting budget cuts despite state budget surpluses. That's how weak we are politically. Did anybody check the, the footnotes? Did anybody check the numbers? Um, yeah, and it, it, it's really quite amazing uh, how this has all played out. because well, some, it, of, some of it is also ideological, though, Prof. Neal, isn't it? In the sense that you've had a succession of governors in Wisconsin over some years, despite the long radical tradition of many parts of the state, who mm-hmm. have been uh, ideologically committed to undermining unions and undermining worker solidarity and undermining independent intellection. And that's a theme across the United States 
And it it is also one of the reasons why, should Donald J. Trump be re-elected, he will feel under some pressure to do things like end the Department of Education. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the governor, Scott Walker, who preceded uh, the current governor, uh, Tony Evers, who is a Democrat, um, was was uh, no question that the Walker administration was openly hostile to to organized labor to the UW system. Uh, and, and many that's happening. You're right. Across the United States, it, it, it is clearly ideological as well. We saw this in Florida. Uh, yesterday, I saw an article, right, that um, I think the state of Florida's the board appointed by Governor DeSantis has sort of removed a sociology course, I believe, from, um, you know, the, the list of acceptable courses students can take and, and some sort of uh, university requirement. That's going to really, you know, substantially hurt sociology in, in Florida, in the University of Florida system. Um, so yeah, there's, there's no question that this is, uh, ideologically driven. I mean, th- there's sort of several motivations here. And, you know, one motivation is to sell us more and more products in higher ed. There's always more software to buy that, that, um, is a game changer. And yet the game keeps getting more lopsided. We're losing by more points. And yet we continue to buy more software as we get rid of programs. Uh, we hire more consultants to tell us what programs to get rid of and and certain corporate interests are just off the table. So there's that motivation constantly. Uh, but there's also just an ideological larger motivation that's mm-hmm. that's openly hostile to to higher education, to to liberal arts fields, to organized labor. Um and and so there's yeah, there's there's several different things going on sort of meeting together, I think, which... In and within world. universities, often libraries' budgets get reallocated to buy bullshit software instead of yeah. buying our books, Neil, our little books. And <laughs> journals that we think are valuable, instead, money is going to, you know, collections of journal series produced by big corporate publishers, two or three in particular, not university press publishers, uh, and to software. So there, there is a real transformation at a, an ordinary policy level as well as at a big ideological level. And the Democrats don't get a free pass on this at all because no. if you go and think of this, what used to be called the Blue Dog Democrats, the Clinton Democrats, yeah. they were forever blaming education for every bloody thing that went wrong and still yeah. do, yeah? Yeah, no, absolutely, and and... John Shelton, uh, you know, his, his outstanding book, The Education Myth. I mean, he he talks quite a bit about Democratic administrations. Uh, and no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, Democrats, um, many Democrats still are are very strong believers in what John calls the education myth and what I call the fantasy economy. I mean, they they talk in the language of, you know, workforce development and a skills gap and and. And and they and again, I mean, I'll defend them for a minute. And we talk about education as the, you know, source of economic opportunity. Again, it sounds innocuous. It sounds like who could oppose that? Who? It sounds benign. But the fact is, we we can't educate our way out of stagnant wages or inequality or growing inequality. Um, and so if we adopt that language and we adopt that framing and we repeat it ad nauseum, which is what has happened in the last several decades, that brings us to the current moment where we're so weak, we're, we're getting a budget cut when there's a state surplus. We have a Democratic governor and a Democratic um, board of regents in the state of Wisconsin. Yes, it's a Republican legislature for sure. They're, they're, they've made their position known on the UW for they continue to do so for a long time. Um, but we have to, we have to stop and think about all of the language that we're using, all of the assumptions, not just the data, but, but everything. Uh, and, and that's kind of how I end the book saying we need to think very differently about education itself. Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't appear good where things are headed, uh, currently. You um, urge us to go back to reality. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it. That's it. I mean, I mean, um, you know, you know, it's funny because when I teach classes, I, I, you know, I say, I mean, 
you know all this stuff. We live in the real economy. We know, and your parents know it, and I know it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have jobs in the real economy. <laughs> um, you know that retail and food services and home health care and, and these types of jobs employ millions and millions of, and warehouses, millions and millions of people uh, in almost entirely non-unionized workplaces. Um, you know, and, and so in many ways, I think despite the difficulty some, well, many have in, in even grasping what John is saying or what I am saying. On the other hand, I think we're hopeful because we live in the real world. We live, we live in the real economy and, and, uh, um, people know intuitively that something is off here. <laughs> There's too many 30 and 40 year olds that, that are working in a job that requires their four year degree that are having a very hard time making ends meet and 50 year olds and 60 year olds. Um, that, that something, something, something doesn't add up here. Um, so, you know, I think in some ways we're, we're a little bit optimistic in spite of everything that's happening. I mean, if you think about another important figure in this, Gary Becker and oh, yeah. mm-hmm. of human capital that won him the Nobel prize, he's absolutely right. It's just that it applies to the ruling class. Yeah. When the elites decide to invest in their human capital, they're absolutely right to do so, because by going to expensive private universities in the United States, some of which I've taught at, uh, they meet one another, they sleep with one another, they get high with one another, they forge friendships with one another. And because they've already got high levels of educational capital from private secondary schools they've gone to, they get through okay, and then they go on to graduate school or marriage to someone wealthy, and off they go. And it's worth investing in this human capital stuff because they've all, they're already positioned within an elite. Whereas the idea that, you know, you go to some public universities and you don't pay all that much, or you pay quite a lot, depending on which state you're in yeah. and where you're from, and that will be your leg up, is actually quite problematic unless you manage to go to a professional school that doesn't put you heavily into debt and then manage to get into the elite sector of that profession. And those are big questions, aren't they? Really big questions. Uh, You know, absolutely. And I think what you're describing, I mean, if you want to call it sort of sociology 101 or just common sense, or I mean, just, you know, um, the, you know, well-off students, and they're well-off parents. They go to uh, a different type of university in the first place, and they travel in different circles, as you say. And they can study comparative literature, by the way, uh, and go work on Wall Street, right? Um, and and we're, so we're not debating getting rid of comparative literature, philosophy, history, whatever, and political science at either elite private schools or flagships. They're off the table. The rest of higher ed, which is the majority, is very much on the table. Uh, and, you know, what's on the table is comparative literature and philosophy like we saw in, in well, you see this all over the country, right? Um, not software, not consultants. They actually build the table. <laughs> um, they're not on it. Um, and it's all sold as, you know, we're sorry. That's just how things that's are. That's how the world works. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's how, yeah, that's right. That's right. I was so, working in the University of California system when the global financial crisis hit. And of course, it started where we were, Southern California at the time. About a year earlier, economics faculties in the UC system had argued that they should be paid at a higher scale than anybody else because their work was in such demand by the corporate sector. And so in addition to all kinds of incentives available to all public employees within the UC, they should also get a hefty surplus added on, a kind of bonus because of the implied denial of their career prospects. This was approved. When the fiscal crisis hit, I said, well, uh, these salaries should go down dramatically now because this kind of knowledge is not in demand. Because it's a bloody joke. 
It was wrong about everything. And these people are losing their jobs all over the finance sector. Astonishingly, this perfectly reasonable argument was not accepted, Neil. Amazing, isn't it? The way in which people want markets to apply in their fantasies only when they help some people in society and not when they would work against the interests of those same people. Yeah. No, yeah, I think that's exactly correct. It makes me think of, you know, these debates we we see all the time uh, in the United States. And on one hand, we're talking about, well, we, we want to, this is all just about costs and, and cutting costs. And yet, you know, liberal arts majors are pretty much the cheapest on any campus in the United States. You know, we don't have labs. We don't, uh, faculty is paid less than faculty in, in, in business and, and the sciences and, and you know, in, in many cases. Um, so then those things are pointed out, those facts are, but well, it's not only about costs, it's about other things too. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think those kinds of arguments are made at, at a lot of schools where, well, there's market demand. I mean, I, it, it's funny because it's almost as if, well, you want to say, you know, then go get the, you know, there's the door, you know, I mean, it, 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 if truly, if that's what you could be paid elsewhere, then, per, you know, perhaps, perhaps people should look for positions elsewhere. I don't know, but um, that's, that's also kind of insidious. It's pitting faculty against one another, I think. And, and um, which is not helpful in, in general when we're trying to, we're trying to unite people, but um but yeah, it's really at the end of the day, in many cases, not not about markets, uh, market thinking at all, uh, because many of the many things that are actually very inexpensive uh, at universities are seen as, um, uh, you know, extraneous or not necessary or on the table, as they say. You know? Now, touching on that issue. Often these ideologues of the right and technocracy invoke ideas of citizenship. And you point this out in the book that uh, this is about a failure of education to prepare citizen the citizenry for the realities of the labor market, whether those realities are actual or imagined. Could you tell us a little bit about citizenship preparation or labor or ideas of citizenry that are more valuable, that should be endorsed, that can be invoked in a more progressive vision of education, both at earlier levels and at post-secondary ones? I mean, I think that that it's citizenship and, and thinking in terms of education as fostering citizens is, a, in many ways, a very traditional idea, but it's an idea that's been diminished substantially. Uh, when we see education very explicitly, not implicitly, very explicitly in in terms of its economic benefit only. Uh, and citizens, of course, are are not uh, economic units. Uh, citizens are, you know, actively engaged in democracy. And, you know, to the extent that that we de-emphasize education as preparing citizens in a democracy. I mean, I think this is, this is a big part of why democracy in the United States and many other parts of the world is kind of uh, in serious jeopardy right now. I think in part because of how we think about education um, and how we talk about education. And I think a lot of the problem stems from education itself, how education higher education in particular talks about the purposes of higher education, not so much, not if at all, in terms of preparing citizens in a democracy, but rather preparing the workforce. I mean, this, this is coming from the leaders in higher ed. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I think that many of the ideas associated with educate, you know, citizenship education, on one hand, they might sound quaint to us, but I think they're critical. I think they're critical. Um, they're critical in terms of uh, uh, 
maintaining democracy. They're also critical in terms of of making sure that that the the system in which we operate, the assumptions in which we operate, make explicit that the education system can't can't shape the labor market. It can't give you a raise. It can't create new jobs. It can't it, it can't do any of those things. It can educate. <laughs> And it, it can educate you in all these wonderful things and you will grow as a person uh, and you will become uh, uh, a much more hopefully active citizen when you are when you're done with your education at whatever level, whether it's high school or beyond. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that that sort of way of thinking and about education and the importance of citizenship as a purpose of education really has to be kind of at the forefront of how we're thinking about all this stuff, how we're talking about all this stuff. And um, otherwise, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's like I said previously, it's, it's not, it, it's not going to end well for much of the education system in the United States. Yeah. Prof. Neal, a number of people that I've spoken to for the podcast since I revived it late last year, when asked what they're thinking about or what's preoccupying them, offer an answer that includes, in a sense, polarities of despair and hope, and in a sense, a recognition of the need for despair as the correct analytic response and emotional one to the real political economy but always with an eye to resources of hope. Do you see any resources of hope in all this? I do. I do. I see uh, a labor movement across the United States that um, in higher education and, and elsewhere that is reinvigorated. Um, I see uh, public opinion data um, showing unions at 70% approval. Um, I, I see a public that increasingly recognizes that, um, that, you know, that the education system, because they live it every day, can't, can't save them financially. And I, and I also see and hear many people who are willing, willing to listen to what, you know, the kinds of arguments John Shelton and, and I are making. Um, about, hey, wait a minute, we're putting all this on the education system. How did we get to this point? Um, I, I do see a lot of hope. I see a lot of hope. Most of the hope I see is outside of higher education. Um, but, um, but yeah, I do. I, I, I do. And, and I have to remind myself of all these things I just said because, uh, on any given day, um, I'm often hopeless, but then I have to remind myself of that list I just ticked off because I think it, I think these are things that are happening. I mean, Cal State, you know, just the other day, right? Faculty, the strike lasted what a day or something, a half day. I don't even know what it lasted. Um, and you know, they made incredible, uh, gains as a result of that. And this is the California State University system, right. which is the non doctoral granting higher education sector of public universities in California and where, unlike in the University of California, which is the so-called elite aspect, or so we say doctoral granting and it has medical schools and law schools, Cal State faculty can unionize. They have the right to unionize, the, which basically means in the U.S. the requirement of employers to engage in collective bargaining. They can agree to engage in collective bargaining in other sectors, like in private schools, but they're not obliged to. So, um, Prof, I had a couple of questions more for you, if I may, and then sure. I want to throw it open to you in case there are things that you'd like to mention that we haven't yet touched on. So my first of my two questions is to take you back, 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 as they say in baseball. I don't know how popular baseball is in River Falls, but... Uh, Back, back, back in baseball to a really important book you wrote called Majoritarian Cities. And if you can take us back a, a decade to when that book came out, explain a little bit about 
what you meant and what you sought to do in that volume? Sure. Um, that book was the result of a number of years of research on two cities, uh, Gary, Indiana. I lived in uh, Northwest Indiana for a couple of years and I did some field work there. And then um, Minneapolis River Falls is actually quite close to the border of Minnesota and Wisconsin. And um, so I've lived in the Minneapolis St. Paul area for a number of years. Um, and I really sought to, to understand, um, you know, kind of a disconnect in, in the city between on the one hand, you have particularly Minneapolis, a very progressive city, uh, in, by all the standard measures, you have, uh, one of the more progressive, um, cities really in the, in, in the Midwest and, in terms of elections and, you know, the mayors we've had and in and, and Minneapolis and so yep. forth. Yep. Um, and yet there's, you know, substantial racial inequalities that are kind of, kind of become, uh, uh, you know, embedded over a period of decades in the school system and law enforcement. Uh, and the book came out long before George Floyd. Uh, and I have a chapter on policing uh, reform, the difficulty of policing reform. But the gist of the book is, you know, I wanted to look at, you know, we have this progressive city where, I don't know, three quarters or so of residents would say they're Democrats, something like that. It's a very high percentage. Yeah. Um, and yet we have all this inequality, what's going on. And um, so I looked at a few policy areas there, education, law enforcement, uh, you know, uh, housing. And I found that, you know, when push comes to shove, a, a lot of um, progressives a, appear to be not particularly progressive when it comes to issues of affordable housing, um, you know, relatively satisfied with law enforcement. This is, again, 2013. This is long before George Floyd. Um, uh, and and um, so there are very clear limits to that progressivism when on these close to home type issues and, and the schools. Um, uh, and, and that, that's really kind of the gist of it. I think I, I, um, you know, just trying to understand what would seem to be a disconnect between a, a very liberal progressive type city and, and uh, a lot of policy outcomes that don't appear to be particularly progressive. Um, that was really kind of the overarching uh, point of that book. And it is a terrific book. And just again, a bit of context, Minneapolis and the upper Midwest has had a strong progressive tradition. It was Hubert Humphrey territory. Yeah. Uh, he was vice president and nearly won the presidency. And it's where a number of people with socialist interests settled from the Nordic countries in the 19th century. And while leading agrarian lives, were quite interested in agrarian socialism in many cases. And... Uh, that has led to, that has that is part of a tradition that's complicated and is shifted, but nevertheless has strong roots in the area. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, Walter Mondale is from Minnesota. Paul Wellstone, the late Paul Wellstone. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there's a there's a long line, a very you know long uh, line of, of progressives from not only Minnesota but the Upper Midwest. And and uh, so yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And and Humphrey was is certainly one of the main figures in that in, in that uh, list. For it's sure. always had its blind spots, most notably with Humphrey, the Vietnam War, yeah. and race, and really a strong point, we could say, as you have indicated. So, Prof, my, my last question before throwing to you in case there are things you want to add or perhaps subtract, who knows, is to ask you something about how you go about this. So imagine I'm a biochemist or a biologist and we're evaluating Professor Krauss for hyper-distinguished professor in the UW system. But God damn it, how does he know all this stuff? Um, well, I don't, first of all, I don't think that will happen, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I rest assured that I don't think that'll happen. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think that... Um, I mean, what I tend to think about is, is, you know, I, I didn't, the story we were being told didn't, didn't add up to me. The story that, that, that we never, our workers or our graduates were always inadequately skilled, that there was always a shortage of, of uh, skilled workers, that 
that uh, higher ed, you know, was just never, never doing well enough. That that never made sense to me. And so I started to, to check, uh, initially just started to check data sources. And, um, uh, and, and I think it's not, you know, don't take my word for it. <laughs> don't take my word for any of it. The reason I wrote the book is because I, I didn't, this didn't add up to me. This didn't make sense to me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not, and, and, and if we repeat something, if we repeat the skills gap six or 8 million times, it doesn't make it true because we've repeated it that many times. Um, and so I, I just, it, 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 it didn't, the whole situation just didn't, didn't fit together. So I guess what I would say is, is don't take my word for any of it that spend some time uh, at the the Department of Education's website and, and the New York branch of the Federal Reserve and look at their data on bachelor's degree holders. Look at look at the BLS's data on the educational requirements of the labor market. Um and and look at uh the you know look at the Department of Labor's data on just the, the hundreds and hundreds of jobs that actually exist and what they pay and how many, you know, I mean, we know everything we need to know. We know how many bartenders are in New Mexico. I mean, we, we bartender jobs. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we know, we know virtually everything, uh, that we need to know. Uh, so I guess that's what, that's my kind of immediate reaction. Um, is, is to, to, I mean, I don't have any real special skills, Toby. I don't know econometrics. Um, you know, I barely made it through calculus in high school. Um, but I can look up a reference and, and then I can compare two thirds to, you know, 38% and, and see that, well, one is substantially greater than the other. And yet they're supposed to be on the same metric on the same, um, uh, and, you know, I think if, uh, the media did that, uh, I think if if other research researchers did that, um, I think they'd understand, you know, what I'm what I'm trying to do. I, I couldn't agree more that a lot of this material that we need is there front and center in front of us. And it's gathered by very respectable in, you know, really independent and civically minded, dedicated public servants who don't want to bullshit. They have no interest in that. They want people to yeah. know what's going on. But the efficacy, the efficiency, the effectiveness, the impact is dwarfed by the public relations machine of think tanks that spread absolute nonsense. So, no, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Prof, thanks to you, we've planned a discussion, another one in a few days with you and your colleague, John Shelton, who've, whose work you've mentioned. I'm really excited about that. So you're going to get another shot at this <laughs> shortly. But for now, are there things that we've touched on where you'd like to add something or are there fields of endeavor or angles of knowledge that we've not quite delved into in the way you'd like? I mean, I think, you know, one thing that, that strikes me, we sort of touched on on software just in, in passing. I mean, one thing that, that I really emphasize in the book, we didn't get a chance to talk about now too much is the notion of, of technology yes. in, in education. And, and um, one thing I discovered in doing the research and reading really just stuff from the seventies and eighties onward is that in education, nearly everything is seen as a technology problem with a technology solution. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're seeing this now today in higher ed more than ever. Uh, and, you know, this, the, this debate, I think, is should be, it's not, but it should be central to what, what, you know, is happening inside of higher education as we are across the country. We saw this in West Virginia, most notably just a few months ago, uh, but we're seeing it all across the United States getting rid of liberal arts majors while we buy more and more and more software uh, to do what exactly? To do what? Um, to to retain students. Uh, retention is a, like education, it's a human interaction 
uh, that's going to retain students. We're not going to retain students on screens. Um, you know, uh, and yet technology firms have become so, so powerful and so dominant that we're talking in their language, we're using their data, uh, and, the, uh, you know, the lone wolf will say, wait a minute, maybe we actually need uh, the history major. Maybe that's important. And we'll give that person space. We'll allow them to talk for a minute. Okay, okay. And then we'll come back to, yeah, but just not how things are now, you know? Um, so I think, and perhaps John and I could get into it uh, when we talk, but I, I think that, 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 you know, technology, and I talk about this throughout the book, I mean, some of the statements that were made by foundation and other officials in in the 80s, as early as the 80s, about, you know, getting upset with with uh, uh, teachers, that they're not using cable television enough in their classrooms. Um, I mean, you know, and then the internet was going to take over and, and we were all going to, we were going to educate in the 90s, uh, all kids on screens. Um, those arguments clearly lost. This is the, the hard part. They lost, the, the public actually likes instructors. They, they, they like classrooms. They like talking to professors. They like reality. Um, but that, that doesn't really enter into much mainstream discourse that those simple facts, um, my apologies for my dog barking in the background, but, uh, um, but yeah, so I think technology though is, is, is a huge, huge, uh, piece of this that, that, you know, I've asked a number of online education advocates. I, I ask this question all the time, just respectfully. Do you or your kids receive, have received, have they received online education? Most either don't answer me or acknowledge no. Some will say no, but higher ed still needs to change. Oh, I see. Not for you and your kids. I get it. Okay. Understood. Understood. <laughs> Let's have that debate. <laughs> Let's have that discussion. Online education for who? <laughs> for who? Um, I think a lot of, you know, uh, yeah, I, I would look forward to that debate. Um, just like liberal arts majors for who? Let's have that discussion too. Um, so yeah, that those are just a few thoughts, but hopefully John and I can, can add, can, can, can pick up on some of those themes, I think. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you very much, Prof. Kraus. I have learned so much from reading your work over the years, but I really felt a bolt of recognition and almost relief in reading The Fantasy Economy because it said things that I, as you were putting it, thought I knew. But Well, thank you very much. Reinforced that in a good way, I think, in a very helpful way, put some real flesh on the story. So it was really great meeting you, albeit virtually, and look forward to chatting again with your colleague. I, I do too. It was very nice meeting you, uh, Toby, and uh, look forward to talking to you with John Shelton very soon.